listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose-Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm a longstanding journalist of health, the environment, food, public policy, and the media. Um, and I report on a range of outlets, including um, Truthdig, Common Dreams, Truthout, and many others on these and related topics, always connecting the dots between our personal well-being and all that's going on in the many sectors of our society and our world. And, of course, um, you know, I've been talking about health for about the, the last decade or more of the show and, and for 30 years before that. And, of course, now it's front and center and the interface between our personal health, public health, our society, uh, and our planet are really never, have never been more apparent than they are now uh, during the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, on today's show, I'm really delighted to bring back uh, a journalist whose work I highly regard, and he's been a guest on the program before. Um, today, we'll be talking with Eric Levitz, who is a journalist for New York Magazine, um, and has done a series of articles on COVID and the popular and government missteps uh, on COVID response. And so that's what we'll be discussing today. Uh, and I really look forward uh, to the conversation because Eric is really uh, knowledgeable and, you know, uh, uh, covers a lot of very interesting and interconnected turf. Um, so, you know, welcome back to Connect the Dots, Eric Levitz. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, good to be here. So you've done a whole series of articles on different facets of this, um, and they range for, and, you know, what we kind of have going on is a bit of a uh, polarization or a push-pull about um, addressing the pandemic, but also dealing with the economic, um, you know, the huge economic problems that have been created by the pandemic itself and by the public response to it. Um, so, you know, you've covered different facets of that, which I hope we can, um, you know, kind of hear about on the show today. And I thought maybe we'd just begin um, with, you know, the health view, um, you know, and, and in terms of your perspective on, you know, what's going on with this pandemic and its, you know, uh, its, its importance and, um, you know, and the concerns about it um, for us as as human beings, as a collective, and, and for our economy as well. We'll get to the economic part more later. But if you could, you know, just kind of share your perspective from the reporting you've done. Sure. Well, so I don't think it's uh, that novel a perspective to say that, you know, the pandemic uh, has really um, spotlighted, spotlit a, a lot of pre-existing uh, and, and sort of obvious flaws in the American healthcare system. Um, some of those flaws are ones that, uh, that none, didn't necessarily get as much attention from progressives before the pandemic. Um, so obviously the, the major one of we are, you know, the only advanced industrial nation that does not have universal healthcare that has, you know, tens of millions of our citizens with really no access uh, to affordable medical treatment, um, which in a pandemic, uh, that's obviously obscene from a, a standpoint of justice uh, in all times. In a pandemic, it's, it's just, uh, you know, insane from the perspective of anybody in the society, because even if you are a reactionary who does not care about the fate of, uh, you know, uh, disadvantaged people, um, 
if any one person can't uh, get, you know, treatment for COVID, can't get tested and can't, uh, you know, find out they have this infectious disease, that threatens everybody in the society. Um, so so there's, there's that element. But the elements that I think received less attention, um, certainly there were people warning about it, uh, were the the major cutbacks and surge capacity that we did in, in hospitals around the country as we sort of established this kind of just-in-time uh, health uh, production system. So basically taking the logic from the private sector where, you know, you never want to pay for um, for beds and, and rooms and, and supplies that you don't need. You want to try to match as closely as possible the demand uh, for health services to the, uh, you want to match as, as closely as possible the supply of health services to the demand and, and not have unused capacity. This is makes sense if you're a private firm that's trying to maximize profitability. But for a healthcare system in a world where um, pandemics exist and are getting, in fact, more frequent because of uh, both our, our globalized economy with people moving around a lot, the rise of factory farming, the rise in density of human beings. We're basically in a situation where we have more favorable conditions for novel viruses to evolve, mutate, and jump from animals to people than has ever existed in human history. So these are should be expected. And in that context, uh, you really do want some excess capacity at your hospitals so that you you know don't have to worry about uh, having to do triage when your emergency rooms are are flooded with uh, people infected by the novel contagious disease. Um, So that's one element. The other big thing um, is the state of our nursing homes and and how we treat the elderly. Uh, In this country, we've had really poorly regulated um, nursing homes uh, for uh, a long time, and and these became major Clusters uh, for COVID, uh, basically, you know, you have a lot of this very vulnerable population warehoused uh, in often crowded facilities taken care of by extremely underpaid um, caregivers and providers who Mm -hmm. often many of them have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. So in a lot of these places, you had uh, these nursing home uh, attendants who worked at like three different nursing homes in the region. And so if one nursing home had an outbreak, these people, you know, the, the, the denizens of the nursing home, they're spreading it, but at least they're stuck in one place. But the people who care for them are moving about their communities. They're going to other nursing homes. Um, you know, obviously they, they have families. And so these, these became, this is how the virus really exploded out from these nursing home clusters. Um, and we did not uh, provide these uh, nursing home attendants with any PPE, um, even when the, the death started in, in Washington, it took weeks and weeks before people bothered to give these people protective equipment. Um, and that sort of reflects the general neglect of nursing homes uh, that, that's contributed significantly to the to the pandemic. That's very true. And and also kind of, you know, that, that problem, as you point out, Eric, was poorly handled and kind of overlooked at the beginning. Um, but it's also going to be that same problem is going to be a factor um, in opening up, you know, uh, because there will be more need for these underpaid so-called essential workers um, who, you know, who may be uh, both performing an absolute bottom line task that without which society can't open and at the same time 
um, you know, are not adequately protected themselves, are not adequately compensated themselves, and are, in fact, um, unwittingly possibly spreading, you know, the virus because um, they may, again, be doing multiple jobs. You know, it's not yeah. at all out, un- unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, you know, there's a progressive hope that uh, in this moment where we have labeled all of these, uh, you know, previously undervalued, low-paid workers essential, where we've had this sort of, like, uh, incredible demonstration of, you know, where value is actually produced in the economy, you know, what, what can we actually not live without? And it turns out that a lot of the things that we really actually can't as a society a lot of the labor that we can't get by without uh, is labor that we, our, our market system has uh, devalued, um, and then the people who perform it, you know, are barely above subsistence. And so there's this hope that, oh, well, we're having this demonstration that these workers are, are essential, and, and not only are they essential to the functioning of the economy, but in the specific context we're in now, they're um, putting their lives at risk. Uh, in order yes. to help our, our our economy still function, and so maybe this will lead to you know we're calling them heroes. Maybe this is going to lead to the realization that we actually you know the market is not pricing people's labor correctly, and we need to intervene to make sure that that we reward uh, the work that's truly valuable. But the the mm-hmm. flip side, uh, you know, for conservatives is that that uh, you know they they don't want any of that, and this is actually just an argument for um, you know getting out of this situation as quickly as possible before people continue to ask those sorts of questions. Uh, and so instead what we've seen is that um, the, the threat no longer exists. And in fact, um, as this threat is getting, as the threat to the health of frontline workers is going to be, you know, going up as lockdowns ease, um, companies are ending, some companies, retailers have been paying hazard pay bonuses to their frontline workers. But now that we're mm-hmm. pretending that the pandemic is over, people are actually stopping, uh, canceling that hazard pay. So we're actually uh, going to come out of this in the next few months, it seems, by putting these workers in greater danger and paying them less than they, than we've been the past month or two. So that, that's where we are with that. Um, mm-hmm. What is, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, there is this um, refusal in the society to pay these so-called essential workers to provide them with the equipment they need. The same is true of frontline health workers. At the same time, um, you know, there are people who um, are at risk for, you know, in the spread of COVID, who are clamoring for, as well from various segments to reopen society because of the economic uh, lack that occurs when businesses are shut down and, and when all this activity is curbed. Um, so, you know, there's this kind of push to open economically, but one of the reasons that's needed is that we're not doing what the other developed nations of the world are doing in terms of economically providing for people, you know, giving uh, rent relief, giving uh, basic income, doing, you know, all kinds of things um, that would make what we need to do from the health side in terms of lockdown sustainable, economically sustainable for everyone. Um, But, you know, there's just been... uh, that's kind of the missing link in the picture because the very people who are clamoring, you know, reopen the society, you know, so that we can be economically viable, don't seem to have any awareness of the fact, uh, you know, of what other countries are doing um, so that we can follow the health recommendations. 
Um, you know, uh, so, I mean, what's your perspective on that? It's kind of almost as if the entire um, primary campaign of Bernie Sanders, who is speaking continuously about the economic injustice in our society and how to redress it, um, you know, it's like it seems like a lot of people never heard or understood or, you know, had any clue that that was happening. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, instead it's like, please let me open my small business and, you know, be exposed to more people who have the virus and expose other people because that's the only possible economic solution. You know, um, how is it? Um, that these, you know, I mean, if you could explore the dynamics of why better solutions are not on the table in this country as they are elsewhere so that we could maintain the necessary lockdown to really, um, you know, shut this down, uh, you yeah. know, I think it would, yeah, be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, so a few things. Uh, I think as you were maybe suggesting, you know, I, I think it's sort of, is in reverse in terms of the Republican Party, where it's, um, I don't think that they're ignorant uh, totally of, of, you know, the differences between our economy and, you know, the economy of Denmark. Uh, mm-hmm. But that, um, but, but that precisely because maintaining shutdowns uh, in a way that is both uh, politically and economically tolerable um, mm-hmm. requires policies that are anathema to their, their entire worldview and vision of government. And it is for that reason you, you'll see among conservatives that the biggest skeptics of coronavirus, like uh, just in terms of like COVID truthers, people who believe that this is just the flu or, or were saying that it's mm-hmm. completely overhyped. These were almost all the most libertarian um, figures within the conservative firmament. Uh, I believe Richard Epstein, this, this libertarian lawyer, got a lot of attention early on predicting that there wouldn't be more than like, I, I think, uh, maybe 500 uh, deaths from COVID or something. And a lot of in, in the White House, um, you know, uh, Larry Kudlow, Stephen Moore is not in the White House, but an informal advisor were, were early skeptics, I believe, as well. So I think it's working in the opposite way where they recognize that, that it does indeed require social democratic policies to maintain shutdowns. And for that reason, the pandemic must not exist. Um, but I, I think that it, it's a little complicated because um, in terms of like actual relief spending, the U.S. is on par with, um, and, and in fact, uh, has exceeded um, in terms of total stimulus a lot of Western European countries, um, in part because we have the global reserve currency, the dollar, and we have, for that reason, um, just a, in a tremendous amount of fiscal capacity. So we, much more than other countries in the world, because uh, the dollar is the currency that, that uh, is used to facilitate global trade because everybody, we have the largest consumer market and everybody has a ton of debts denominated in dollars, so everybody can use dollars. And so dollars uh, facilitate um, global trade for that reason, especially in times of crisis, people want to have access to dollars. Um, and so our currency, even though we're spending and printing and printing lots more dollars, uh, the demand for it is keeping up. And so we can really afford to stimulate our economy without running the risk of inflation. We're, we're in a a uniquely privileged position to help our people through this hard time. Um, mm-hmm. But so partially because of that, we've been able to, you know, get $3 trillion at the door. In 2008, we had like a $900 billion stimulus, um, or 2009, uh, and that was spread over three years. We have a $3 trillion stimulus this time, and it's really concentrated on this year, um, in part because, you know, I think the GOP is interested in 
to the extent that it's willing to tolerate government spending, it, it will do so instrumentally to help Trump's reelection. But so mm-hmm. we've, we've had this money allocated. The problem has been twofold. One, that, uh, that beyond relief spending, we don't have underneath that just a, a permanent uh, welfare state and social safety net comparable to the kind that they have in Western Europe. So whatever we've done this year, it doesn't compensate for the fact that we don't have a universal health care system, that we don't have child allowances that are generous, that we don't have public child care. I mean, obviously, in, in the current context, it doesn't help. But, uh, but, but we don't have as generous and, and well-maintained unemployment insurance system. Um, so we've tried to compensate for this somewhat. The, the CARES Act um, provisions and unemployment insurance are actually very robust and generous. Um, or, or at least robust, uh, and leave most of the workers who've been fired during this uh, pandemic uh, have been low-income workers. And the way that that uh, bill is structured, low-income workers uh, should end up with more income uh, than they had on their jobs from this federal expansion of unemployment insurance. The problem is that we haven't built our country to, uh, to efficiently uh, distribute social welfare spending to people. And so we have in all of the states with this federalized unemployment insurance system where it, it has to be routed through 50 different state bureaucracies, most of which are severely underfunded and have never seen an uptick in unemployment insurance claims like this before. And so a lot of mm-hmm. people are struggling to get access to the unemployment benefits that they are entitled to. So there's that mm-hmm. problem. We haven't done enough to support small businesses because of we structured the, the program in a, a strange way. We haven't done these wage replacement schemes that they have done in Denmark. Um, but the amount of money that we put out there would be potentially enough if it was uh, if we had better systems for distributing it um, and, and it was allocated slightly differently. But the, the big problem is that we don't have the underlying social supports uh, that automatically cushion people in these times. And the, the second big problem, uh, the, the really bigger one, is that the expanded unemployment insurance, which is the, the – the best thing that we've gotten out of this so far is that to expire in July and the Republican party is adamant that they are not going to extend that. Um, Mm -hmm. If that, I think that's when the real crisis starts. Uh, I mean, obviously a lot of people are, don't get me wrong, are having severely hard times already. But I I, I think if you get a situation where we're still in the same economic climate that we're in right now, uh, and that unemployment insurance expansion uh, just suddenly uh, drops out, you're going to see, a huge uptick in um, in, in in child uh, you know uh, lack of nutrition in evictions if we don't give rent protections you know in in potentially some degree of social unrest because uh, I think it's really those cash supports that are that are keeping uh, a lot of people uh, solvent right now. Mhm. Mhm. <clears throat> what is your own evaluation of? you know, the uh, concept of our reopening at this time. Are we ready to reopen? Um, you know, what are what do you see in that regard? I think that um, it really depends on what the definition of the, the term is. Uh, and I think that we're in a place where we have no good options um, because of uh, how poorly, you know, because we have a, uh, you know, uh, because we elected a narcissistic authoritarian insult comic um, and put him in charge of our, our government, um, you know, there's basically been no federal 
response, really, that the, the Trump administration from the beginning has treated this as a public relations problem, not a public health problem. Um, mm-hmm. And it's continued to do so even now. It's been, you know, trying to get the CDC to revise down the death count uh, from COVID. It's not interested um, in it, it lacks both the interest and the competence to execute the kind of response that would be necessary to, to safely reopen, like, a, you know, a, a testing and contact tracing program where you have just mass testing for the disease and then you, you know, you do a degree of, of government surveillance to, uh, you know, figure out who else has been in contact with the people who test positive and then quarantine them. This is a logistical challenge. It's also a political challenge in a country that is as, um, you know, uh, individualistic as ours. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't seem like that's happening. A vaccine is almost certainly, you know, uh, a year away at uh, optimistically. Um, People cannot, it isn't the case. I mean, it is true that you can't, you can't keep everybody shut down, for a year you just you can't do it for a wide variety of of, of reasons um you know social not just economic but mental health and 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 there's a lot of people who you know really cannot be alone for that long um and so so we don't have good options um so far the reopenings we we have to admit um that it's still very early uh, but it is not the case that the georgia georgia's cases thus far have been uh, it was the first state to open and and its case count, I believe, has been declining even as it has been starting to reopen. Um, mm-hmm. This is a very strange uh, disease that um, we, we still don't know that much about. Uh, it does seem like some stuff I've read in the past couple of days suggests that um, these coronaviruses uh, and then these SARS um, ones specifically have this odd uh, attribute where um, the vast majority of people don't uh, spread the disease even when they are infected. Um, but but certain individuals, and it seems somewhat random, uh, can spread it to just a ton of people, and you don't know who those individuals are in advance. But so this this partially accounts for how scattershot it's been, where some places have gotten hit really hard and some places uh, where you would think that they would get hit hard based on uh, their inadequate response. Um, you know, places like Sweden, where they never shut down, uh, places like Japan, to a certain extent. Um, where you would sort of expect to have seen large surges uh, and didn't. It does seem like a lot of a lot of the way this disease operates is through luck, either, you know, depending on how... how Actually, I have you to interrupt a, you there because uh, yeah. Sweden has seen surges. It has much higher numbers than all of its neighboring comparable uh, countries. I mean, there's a kind of myth about Sweden, um, you know, that was started early when it was like, oh, let's see how herd immunity works for this virus if... You know, we don't shut down and more people are circulating and, you know, and a lot of people were interested to see the outcome. But now that the outcome is in, it's not a good outcome. I mean, they have like many, many, many more cases. Um, and My understanding is that they're, they're higher than their might, Nordic, uh, other Nordic countries, which is um, potentially the appropriate. They're an outlier. Um, yeah, they're an outlier. Potentially the appropriate benchmark among Nordic countries, um, yeah. But, but they are higher, I believe, than many Western European countries. Uh, and so, arguably, the, the 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 impact has been less severe um, than one might have guessed uh, from the outset. Um, though the, well, I I do agree that it has been they they have been higher than than Denmark and their neighbors. Uh, 
that's yeah, by, by a fairly sizable factor, and they're now kind of stepping back and redressing from some of that. You know, part of the reason for that also is that, you know, we have an assumption based on prior diseases and infections, you know, that herd immunity um, is, is, is always on the horizon, or if you've gotten you know, someone's gotten the disease, then, you know, they will be immune from it. But, in fact, there are many diseases for which, um, you know, that kind of antibody response doesn't occur. It doesn't typically occur for COVID diseases. There are cases of reinfection. There are cases, you know, where they look at an, uh, antibody counts. They're not seeing uh, numbers. It's quite unknown, you know, high numbers. It's quite unknown how long even any presence of antibodies would last and confer immunity. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of from past experience, there's a, there are, there's a, you know, there's kind of a general sense that, you know, that, that herd, herd immunity is always operative. And there may be, you know, a host of reasons, both due to the original nature uh, in some ways of this particular virus, as well as you know, the different genetics and different conditions in different places, why um, that's not an assumption. And the Swedish experiment was really based on, you know, let's try for a herd immunity situation. And, you know, I, th I think theoretically that is, you know, it's, I, I, you know, I don't think that theoretically that would have been a bad idea, but it's not that it's actually been borne out in terms of their results, that they're getting that result. And, you know, it, there's some new science that shows that actually this virus may be a lot more contagious, um, you know, and have different ways of hooking into the system. Um, and because of its coming from, you know, animals to humans, that we may not have that same resistance um, that we would expect to have, you know. So um, that's just because I've been a health reporter for 30 years. So that's kind of my, like, that's kind of what I'm seeing. Um, on the other hand, we're still in early days on all of this. So I think, you know, we have to continue to sort of remain open-minded to what we're, you know, what we see coming out of all of these different things. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And the, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. I do think I, I did happen to spend uh, some of yesterday looking into to some of these issues. And it, it seems like um, nothing is, is, is settled, obviously. But there are a couple indications, recent studies that I saw that, that seem to indicate that um, the sort of nightmare scenario uh, in which, uh, you know, recovery from the disease does not confer lasting immunity and that, that in fact people can be you know very in, in short order rein, reinfected with this virus um a couple data points to suggest that that's probably not the case but we you know we still don't know but there in in south korea there was a study where because one of the things driving that fear was this um this phenomenon of people who had recovered uh then weeks later testing positive again um mm -hmm. and so that created a lot of concern uh but th there was a study among 200 Forty-five South Koreans, I believe, who had who had tested positive a second time, and they found that all of them um, were not actually infectious. That uh, you know, after you recover from a disease, you often have um, dead fragments of uh, virus RNA just kind of circulating in your blood. Yes. Blood, but that this virus is not alive. Um, and the the tests, the polymerase um, something tests that are commonly used for the serological testing. Um, can't distinguish between live and dead virus RNA, so that there's a lot of false positives in the sense of um, reinfection. That these these people they were approved to to go back to work, and South Korea has now uh, revised its policies. So there was 
that, and then there was also this um, uh, just study of people who were infected with, this is more circumstantial, but um, people were infected with the original SARS in, in 2004 in Singapore. Um, there was a study that recently came out that showed that they still had neutralizing antibodies, um, you know, 16 years later. Um, and since uh, they're not the same virus, so that's the only limited, but since there is, they are sort of cousins, the, the original SARS virus and the COVID virus, this, you know, mm-hmm. makes it slightly more likely that, that we will produce lasting antibodies in response to COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, well, you know, it's still thing. not confirmed. Thing to be hoped for. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the negative thing is, is that the Spain uh, serological test, the uh, serological study that came out last week, um, I believe, or, or the week before, uh, Spain's been hit very hard with COVID, um, has a higher per capita death rate than both the United States and Italy. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was optimism of a sort that, uh, you know, if anywhere was getting close to herd immunity, perhaps it would be Spain. And, and their testing suggests that just 5% of their population um, has been infected, which eliminates this optimistic idea that uh, what if there are millions upon millions of people in America who have already been infected with COVID, but they handled it so well, they don't even know it. Um, And maybe we're much closer to achieving herd immunity than we think. And maybe this virus is much less deadly than we think because we're not including in the denominator all of these uh, just completely asymptomatic uh, infectees. And and, and the, the study in Spain suggests that that's not that's not the case, that, that we're very, very, very far from herd immunity, and it will take lots and lots and lots of death uh, to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's terrible. Can you talk, um, let, let's shift gears and spend a little time on, um, you know, the economic response of the administration um, in terms of some of its downside aspects. So, you know, what we're saying is that, you know, more of a social safety net and more infrastructure for providing that, both from a health and economic perspective to people uh, who really need it, is in order. But actually, we've also had these huge expenditures, um, you know, that go to prop up the very people who are profiting off of this, you know, from their uh, stock market evaluations, uh, you know, which uh, is enraging, you know, to the average person who's aware of it. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I mean, the, you know, there's um, there was in the very first uh, phase of the stimulus um, negotiations, there were, were some on the left um, frustrated with the Democratic Party, you know, somewhat understandably, um, who, when Trump and Mnuchin first sort of floated the idea of mailing out checks, uh, raised alarms about Republicans, you know, sort of pulling uh, somewhat similar to what Boris Johnson has done with the conservatives in Britain, uh, where, you know, the, the Tories have implemented a, um, a really pretty robust uh, Keynesian, um, somewhat, you know, working class friendly uh, response to COVID of, of replacing 80 percent of everyone's wages um, and, and really intervening to, to shield people from the, the worst of the recession. And so there was some idea of Democrats are going to get outflanked from the left by this, uh, you know, Heronvoke uh, populist uh, GOP, um, you know, that, mm-hmm. that concern, uh, at least so that's one fear that, that has been put to rest uh, subsequently. It's um, astounding how uh, nakedly, um, you know, reactionary and anti-worker the, um, the Republican Party and the Trump administration's uh, response uh, has been. 
they're currently, um, you know, they're their number one priority for the next stimulus is to uh, make it impossible for workers to sue their employers for not following workplace safety guidance and uh, exposing them uh, to a deadly virus unnecessarily by not oh observing goodness. social distancing, um, mm. you know, not giving them the variety of, I mean, the problem first cropped up and the other major center after nursing homes for clusters has been, um, well, it's been nursing homes, prisons, and meat packing cl- meat packing plant, uh, you know, where you have lots and lots of people uh, tightly uh, packed on these um, assembly lines. They have very weak labor rights. A lot of them are really disempowered uh, immigrant uh, workers um, who also, you know, live uh, in um, uh, w- with lots of other family members and and, and uh, friends and tightly packed residences that, that also are conducive to spreading. Um, you know, there was a lawsuit against one of these plants in uh, Missouri where they alleged that, you know, they were working shoulder to shoulder. They were not provided uh, masks um, for the first part of the pandemic. And they also, uh, you know, their break room was basically just a crowded hallway there were not enough restroom facilities for people to maintain social distancing while relieving themselves. Um, and in response to, to this sort of uh, development uh, that was also causing some uh, food processing plants to shut down over safety concerns, that Donald Trump uh, issued an executive order compelling them or, or uh, categorizing them as um, essential, uh, you know, industrial sites that under the Defense Production Act, his administration could compel to remain open uh, and also um, at least propose an executive order uh, waiving liability uh, or giving protections against liability lawsuits to meatpacking plants. And now in the, in the new stimulus bill, they want to um, legislate that to all industries. Oh, my so that's, goodness that's gracious. The big, that's hmm. the big priority. And then they've also been, meanwhile, not uh, declining to enforce the CDC guidelines for workplace safety at OSHA. The Labor Secretary, Eugene Scalia, uh, son of Antonin, um, has been, uh, you know, the CARES Act expanded eligibility for unemployment benefits to gig economy workers, and uh, but the Labor Department has to, like, implement those policies, and he's been designing them to restrict, to minimize the number of workers eligible as much as possible, to put onerous requirements on Uber drivers to establish that they have, uh, you know, that the demand for their services has fallen such that they are, you know, uh, in some sense, unemployed, even though they're self-employed, um, they're, they're making it as hard as possible for them to access benefits. And then, yeah, they're, they're uh, opposing the the extension of unemployment uh, insurance benefits, and they're they're starving states and, and cities of fiscal relief, which is um, going to and already has produced layoffs of public sector workers. Um, and so much, you know, spending is, is done at the state level. Uh, if they don't eventually dispense that aid, you're, you're going to have a depression. Um, so the, it's been sort of remarkable. They they did do that initial wave of, of stimulus, uh, you know, when the stock market went down. Um, and they did direct a lot of, uh, as you suggested, um, capital towards uh, providing low-interest loans to corporations um, and, and propping up asset values. But, but overall, over the last month, the dynamic has been – um, the GOP prioritizing uh, maintaining the balance of power um, between capital and labor in, in the favor of capital, in the favor of employers, bosses, and the rich, putting a greater premium on disempowering workers um, than on their own electoral self-interest. They, I mean, the, the, the worse the economy is, 
this year, the, the lower the probability that Donald Trump is going to win re-election. Um, and mm-hmm. Democrats, nonetheless, have been trying to supply the economy with, you know, trillions of dollars more support than Republicans have been willing to uh, to consent to. And it's possible if, if they stick by what they're saying right now, that they are going to sabotage uh, uh, the economy heading into the second half of the year. Um, if they do cut off those unemployment benefits and don't don't replace them with any other cash supports, um, mm-hmm. so it's been pretty remarkable how how committed um, that that you know arguably the, the GOP is less cynical than than we thought in terms of it, it's you know cynical about a lot of things. Obviously, it doesn't really care about deficits. Uh, it, you know, it cares more about military spending and and tax cuts, but um, but it does it, it cares uh, pretty deeply about uh, hurting vulnerable people. Um, you know, potentially more than that. That's a principle that it will stick to, perhaps even beyond its own political self-interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the kind of a mental health component to, um, you know, to shut down and to the state of our society and our economy? So, you know, I'd love it if we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, the polarization and the different um, sort of sectors or, or uh, groups that are kind of uh, rising in response, um, you know, at this time, and and your view of that in, in terms of, of uh... well, in terms of identities, I, you know, you did an article mm-hmm. about that and about um, you know the fact that I mean, there's this kind of alt right um, resistance to compliance mm-hmm. with health recommendations. You know, that's like right. one very notable example of it, but it's not the only place that's happening. I mean, I, I think that there is a loud and, and well-funded um, minority. I mean, it's the, the sort of the Tea Party again, where there is this um, organic uh, right-wing response to shutdown orders, um, you know, uh, which, which are uh, obviously, you know, immensely challenging, uh, you know, in terms of economically, mental health, and otherwise, if you're a small business owner, like this is really a, a very, uh, very difficult situation. Um, and then there's also a decent amount of, you know, privilege and entitlement uh you know to we we built the whole country around um you know sort of we've made the purchasing of goods and services kind of the the meaning of uh of everyone's lives um so you know uh if you can't do that it's pretty frustrating for a lot of people uh who maybe are not um suffering objectively based on their their incomes but uh do not uh, accept the diminishment of their quality of life and then also a lot of these people live in rural areas that, you know, some are getting hit pretty hard now. And they're, if they do get hit, they're extremely vulnerable because of their lower uh, hospital capacity um, and the, the great distance between where a lot of people live and, and medical facilities. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the median rural community has not been hit uh, very hard relative to, to cities. And there's, you know, for a long time and has been exacerbated under Trump, uh, an anti uh, you know, a rural-urban divide and, and anti-city sort of right-wing populist politics. And so I think in a lot of yeah. rural areas, they, you know, resent that they're being put, uh, forced to, to shut down for the sake of, you know, these cosmopolitan elites who, uh, you know, live in these filthy uh, cities, uh, you know, filled with uh, people from around the world who spread diseases and, you know, it's not their fault that this, or whatever it is, it's the fault of the cosmopolitans that this happened. So I think there's some of that, but then also the the Koch brothers, um, the, the Freedom Works, the, the right-wing uh, infrastructure is also very much investing in these protests. So you have that element. And then, uh, you know, you have, um, I mean, it, it's hard, you know, to 
to get uh, you know left wing organizing off the ground when part of the unlike the right part of the um, the left wing analysis and understanding of this crisis is as uh, you know a situation in which solidarity requires us to not gather uh, in large numbers in public. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. So that creates a, an asymmetry. Um, but you know you do see you know uh, some militant worker actions. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've had several Amazon walkouts. We've had some protests at um, Leave GE. Uh, some places where factories have been taken out of production, but the workers have um, have protested to keep them in production to start producing ventilators or, or um, you know, personal protective equipment. Uh, you know, sort of, which is pretty radical because its workers not just uh, protesting over their wages and conditions, but uh, contesting the the nature of production um, at their workplaces um, and trying to push it towards more socially uh, useful ends. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I think most of the, you know, left wing sort of organizing has been happening online. So hasn't manifested um, uh, as strongly or in as, uh, you know, um, in a manner as conducive to media coverage as what's going on in the right. You know, what about the, you know, the whole um, Gates phenomenon and, you know, the people who believe that wearing a mask is unhealthy? Yeah, uh, well, that's, um, you know, uh, you can under, I, I can, I can sympathize with certain versions of the, the reopen argument for the reasons I was stating before that, you know, if we, if we are not going to uh, develop uh, a testing and tracing or, or other um, you know, means of, uh, you know, if, if we're not actually, if what we're waiting for is a vaccine, which is a year away, then that's not tenable. And so we need to figure out some way of uh, figuring out how to um, balance the public health concerns with the, the necessity of, of you know, having a, an open society of some kind. Um, so, but, but obviously, the, to the extent that there's a strong argument there, it is contingent on um, the fact that we've discovered that masks are actually very effective at controlling the spread, and so perhaps we can't afford um, to reopen more than we initially thought because of the efficacy of masks if everybody starts wearing masks. And there's some places just like if literally everyone wore a mask uh, when they went into you know public indoor places that, that we could cut spread by something like 80% or whatever. So like, uh, you know, uh, if you are interested in, in reopening the economy, then you should be proselytizing for masks as loudly as as possible. And yet uh, we do have this just absolute pathology on uh, parts of the right where um, where the mask has now become a, a symbol of, uh, you know, trust in liberal experts um, in weakness and, and cowardice. Uh, it, it's, it's insane and um uh, you know, it is going to create massive problems if it actually uh, is widely adopted. I mean, we've seen real splits in polling of Republicans uh, where I, I believe a majority still supports lockdowns, uh, you know, are still very afraid of the virus, which would be understandable given that the Republican base um, leans towards older voters. Uh, and, you know, we associate conventionally conservatism with maybe a little bit of a, a aversion towards threat. Um, it's possible that, you know, Republican voters who aren't really clued in to s- signals from conservative media elites and 
um, you know, people who vote Republican but don't listen to Rush Limbaugh every day or anything are not that interested in politics um, to the point of following every day and, and taking hearing these message about, um, you know, what they should think about masks are more inclined towards a more commonsensical view of let's, you know, we really should not uh, we should do what we can to prevent the spread of a deadly virus that could kill me. Um, but uh, but we do have this minority, um, which I, I think is growing as Trump m- embraces it. Uh, which uh, has contempt for just the the, the concept of um, of caring about other people's health, uh, you know. Uh, so because uh, mask wearing is, it can protect you some, but it's primarily about you um, avoiding asymptomatically spreading the virus because you don't know whether you have it or not. I mean, if you wear a mask, that'll keep you know droplets from your mouth from entering the air and infecting someone else. And the idea of sacrificing comfort for the the benefit of other people because in the end um in a pandemic situation like many others uh you know protecting other people is actually going to ultimately down the road protect you yourself this concept is um anathema to uh, a lot of right-wingers um and they want to demonstrate their commitment to individual liberty by uh, putting other people at risk mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> Um, but there is a, you know, a kind of an alternative health scenario around some of that as well. Um, what do you, you know, if you had a wish list for, you know, what you would like to see happen um, to help prevent the spread of the virus and bring down the numbers, um, you know, and to make that feasible for people, what would that look like? Yeah, it's a good good question. I mean, the the, the tricky thing is that um, it seems like these you know testing and contact tracing uh, strategies are um, effective. Uh, at the same time, you know, there are legitimate concerns in all contexts about the, the level of surveillance that that would require, um, and with the the U.S. government controlled by the forces that it is, uh, there's even more reason for for concern about that. Um, it does seem like one big thing, one reason why the virus has still been spreading, you know, lockdowns have, have slowed to bend the curve significantly, um, but they obviously haven't stopped new cases from arising. And that's because, you know, uh, people live with other people um, and, you know, some of those people are essential workers. All of those people, almost all of those people have to go some places in public to grocery stores and such. Um, and so you've had a lot of spread within households. Uh, and I think that one thing that, that could be used more that's used in other countries and that is invasive, but I believe there's been some polling suggesting that people would support this, um, is, you know, taking all these empty hotels, uh, and turning them into quarantine centers, um, making sure, you know, that they are comfortable and in decent conditions, but, when when a family member tests positive, um, you know, removing them from the home and putting them in quarantine in a hotel um, to uh, prevent uh, inter-household um, spread, uh, just, yeah, basically just testing in quarantine, um, really aggressive testing in quarantine would, would go a long way. Obviously, as I said before, mask wearing um, in terms of controlling the, the spread of the virus, uh, you know, I think there should also be more cooperation on vaccine development uh, as far as making data available. This, you know, shouldn't be, uh, 
if the, the competitive um, profit-driven competition race to the vaccine um, means that we are not having uh, contact between research teams about what they find um, and that this process is, in fact, delaying the development of an effective vaccine, I uh, you know, think that, that probably we should not rely on, on that, uh, that mechanism. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff that I support in all contexts, I think, would, would help in this one as far as establishing actually universal uh, health care, um, mm-hmm. increasing, um, you know, rebalancing the way that we fund our health care system. Um, you know, obviously, we don't need to increase funding to the health care system in general. We spend 18% of GDP on our healthcare system more than any other country by far. Um, it's extremely wasteful, uh, but it's the funding, you know, we have some hospitals, um, some elite hospitals in, you know, big urban centers that, that have a lot of, uh, you know, luxurious uh, amenities and features uh, are renovated constantly. And then we have these, uh, you know, underfunded, um, rural uh, hospitals that are struggling to to keep their lights on um and so we i think you know a global budget for american hospitals where we can move these resources around to where they're most needed would be helpful um easing uh we have these you know licensing requirements that makes it hard for doctors and in foreign countries to immigrate to the united states um uh, and begin practicing medicine here um if we relax those, we could massively expand our supply of physicians and so that we wouldn't have so much understaffing um, at a lot of these, these uh, lower population hospitals. Um, you know, one could argue maybe that uh, from an internationalist perspective that, um, that uh, you know, attracting foreign doctors away from countries where their services might be needed more, uh, you can have a debate about that. But if you were actually, one of the ironies of Trump is if you were going to do an, a genuine, like, America first policy where we put our national interests ahead of uh, everything else, then you would be increasing immigration in, in a lot of different ways. You know, a, a doctor, an immigrant doctor is someone who a foreign country is paid to educate, um, uh, you know, essentially by, by establishing the institutions that allowed them to gain their knowledge. And now they're their fully formed uh, human capital that is eager to come and, and just uh, enrich our country. Um, and yet, uh, you know, the Trump administration is doing the opposite of making it harder for not just doctors, but uh, foreign uh, students who come and study in the U.S. and, and uh, gain education through our institutions, um, not letting them stay in the country and, and put their their skills uh, to work for the economy. So that, that's a whole other tangle of of issues uh, there. Um, and then beyond that, I think just making sure that we, uh, you know, robust cash support uh, to all households, to uh, all people. Um, in this country, you know, we've got 11 million undocumented people here, um, heavily employed in sectors that have been shut down, uh, hotels, um, restaurants. These are industries that heavily rely on uh, undocumented labor. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I believe these people should be full citizens uh, immediately and should have all the, the, the benefits uh, that, that American citizens do. And I think they contribute more to our country than the, the median native born American. Um, that said, even if you didn't, 
care about them especially. If you have 11 million workers uh, who were previously earning money and spending money into the economy, um, and you provide them no support in a situation where their industries are not allowed to operate, um, you're going to have growth in black market uh, activity, um, and you're going to have a, a fall in consumer demand that, that hurts in the economy and, and suppresses recovery. So I think getting cash into the hands of people who actually need it and will spend it, um, no matter their citizenship status uh, or employment status, is, is very important for the economic component of this. I agree with you. That's really foundational and uh, would alleviate a lot of this contrived conflict, actually. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, it's like if you f- uh, fill the coffers of a particular segment of society, um, you know, electively, because that's supposed to build the whole economy, and then you have a crisis in which the economy kind of needs some resources back in order not to, you know, be taking outsized health risks and uh, you know, destroying the economy and, and killing a lot of people off um, to continue to give that in that same direction. I mean, I think it really, uh, um, for those who are paying attention, it makes Bernie Sanders' point. Um, thank you so much, Eric Levitz of uh, New York Magazine, for joining uh, us today on Connect the Dots with your um, well-rounded insights uh, into the many dimensions of COVID and our COVID response. Uh, and I hope, listeners, that you will follow Eric's articles in New York. He's a, as you can hear from the program, he's extremely well-informed, very lucid writer, um, covering different aspects of this. Uh, and I've really been, uh, you know, enjoying your coverage. And, and it's been great having you share some of your uh, takeaways from the outstanding work you've been doing with listeners here on Connect the Dots. So thank you so much for being with us today. Eric Levitz. That's L-E-V-I-T-Z, everybody, if you're going to look him up, which I hope you will. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you, listeners, for being with us on today's Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network.